Cars on Call is a different car podcast. Two car guy physicians join noted automotive authority, Adams Hudson, to discuss car topics you won't find anywhere else. I'm Steve Schutz, and I've been publishing new car reviews for almost 30 years. Stefan Moran is a trauma surgeon who has published articles in the automotive safety literature and operated on countless car crash victims. And Adams Hudson is a now-retired successful businessman who has bought, sold, and owned over a hundred top-shelf enthusiast cars. Welcome to Cars on Call. Welcome to Cars on Call. I am Steve Schutz, and uh, we are going to get rolling. We have a very special guest soon who we're going to interrupt. Uh, we'll <laughs> we're gonna, we will, will now int- introduce is the word I mean. We're going to introduce him <laughs> soon. I'll give a hint. His name is Dick Barber, so we're excited. Anyway, before we get to that, we've got some news to cover. And I want to start by saying, first of all, thank you to Stefan Moran for serving our country. He is a colonel in the National Guard. He's over in Germany at an undisclosed location doing something in defense of our country. So thank you very much, Stefan. He will not be here today. Adams is here. Adams, how are you? I am doing terrific. And um, I'm sort of halfway stepping in for Stefan, although I'm not a trauma surgeon. But I'm just here enjoying it, and I'm saluting Stefan from long distance as well. Yeah, you're not a trauma surgeon, just like I'm not a trauma surgeon, but uh, <laughs> here we are. So um, we've got a couple pieces of stuff to talk about. One is news, and then, Adams, you have a really cool car spotting that I want to talk about. But let me start with, uh, I would say, a very surprising thing, Adams. Consumer Reports just had a release, a press release talking about auto brand rankings. And it was mostly safety. It was also reliability. I'm sorry, it was mostly reliability. It was also safety and other things like uh, customer satisfaction. But believe it or not, Adams, the number one brand automotively was BMW. That seems to be a surprise. We, we love BMW, but that's a surprise. It is a surprise. And even I think the BMW lovers would be a little bit surprised and and even in, in disbelief to some degree, because look, a lot of the cars that we love are, are, are not the most reliable. I mean, you, you sort of build a relationship based on some of their quirks and, and shortcomings. However, BMW has not been on a lot of people's reliability list. And yet Consumer Reports, if they still cannot be bought, that's their opinion. So good. Go BMW. Whatever you're doing, keep doing that. Yeah. Number one was BMW. Number two was Subaru, which is really surprising. Lexus was number four. Toyota was number six. It's really amazing to see uh, BMW so high. Audi is on the list also, which is surprising. I think they're number 10. And it's just interesting to see that because you really would expect uh, in a Consumer Reports list of any kind for Toyota or Lexus to be number one and two. Hats off to BMW. I've got, you know, I've got two. Uh, I've got a 2013 M3. And the, the, the knock on that is the the rod bearings can cause the engine to stop catastrophically. That's never happened. Uh, I love that car. And my wife has a little diesel station wagon that she's very happy with. And Adams, I know you've had BMWs. We love BMW. I'm very happy for them. Yep, yep. Uh, you know, they had been in their own days back in, I guess, probably the the mid-70s to late-70s, and then possibly into the earliest of the 80s with the 320, very reliable cars and considered very much a, a, a go-to car. Uh, but they they had some 
some fall off with the, the, the Nicosil cylinder liners was not maybe their brightest idea, the way that metal was fused. And you mentioned the rod bearings and, you know, hallelujah that they, they've turned the corner. Whatever they needed to do, they got done. And Steve, you had another one that was a little surprised to have Genesis on there at number seven. How about that? Yeah, Genesis is, is on the rise. Uh, Hyundai as well. You know, we all remember Hyundai from the 80s and 90s where they had horrendous reliability problems. And now all of a sudden they are ascendant. Genesis um, growing, selling a lot more vehicles, and obviously they're reliable. They've got the uh, the nod from Consumer Reports. Good for them. Yep, yep. All right, moving on. Um, there was some car spotting. You know, last week we talked about the Nissan GTR, uh, which is a car you don't see very often. Adams, you saw a sport. You saw a sports car that we see quite often. Well, I did, and the unusual thing about it, why it's even made the list of car spotting, I spotted a, uh, and this will almost blend us into our guest here today. But I was out in Vegas, and you can see some flashy rides in Las Vegas. You know, if you want to see a a chrome-plated Lamborghini, that's your your city. But I, w- I looked up, and there was a 993 Cabriolet in traffic, top-down, filthy, dirty, banged up, smoking a little bit. And, you know, usually when you see a 993, it's just, it's just some garage-kept, pristine, pampered example, and this was anything but. And it sort of relates a little to the, to the reliability part. You know, that's probably a couple hundred thousand mile car and somebody just still enjoying it like a car. And I was I was kind of happy to see it. Adams, I know we're going to get our guests. uh, We're going to get Dick Barber's opinion about the 993. But last of the air cooled 911s, that makes it special just by definition. Indeed, it does. And I think the values are certainly reflective of that. It's also to me. And of course, this is a, you know, not an opinion poll, but I thought it was the prettiest of, of all the air cooled bodies. It was just nipped and tucked and bulged out in the exact right places and they're just fabulous cars yeah the 964 they were budget limited and then the 993 they finally were able to do what they wanted uh i think it's a tony hatter design it's real i think it looks really really beautiful the cabriolet looks good it can yeah it 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 looks a little odd you know uh, porsche never quite got the folding top right in those years you know when it was folded down it looked almost like a German staff car, you know, with the (laughs) the huge amount of wadded up fabric. It looked like it took up twice as much space as the roof did, but uh, it was good to see it out in the wild, just acting like a regular old car. I'm never going to think of it the same again with the top down. (laughs) (laughs) Best to leave those tops up. Uh, There's a a YouTube guy from Connecticut named uh, Nick Murray who came to fame about uh, eight years ago because he had a 991.1 that had all kinds of electronic problems. And he got millions of views documenting that. Uh, And then he got his car bought back. And he's a Porsche enthusiast still. Uh, He had a 991.2. And then he decided to take a little break from new Porsches. And he's got a 993 Cabriolet. And he said exactly what you said. His is kind of ratty and not in great shape. He just thought he'd just tread water for a while. He said he loves driving it. Well, good for him. He probably is referring to, and I, I need to get on that uh, that YouTube channel and look him up, but they're just such a tactile piece of equipment. I mean, people talk about driver involvement, and the newer the cars are to me, uh, technology has sort of distanced us from some of the driver involvement. 
it's almost a, a numb feeling. You feel you're very, you're over nannied, you know, first of all, with driver age and the 993 is nothing like that. Yeah, it's it's a cool car. I'm glad you saw one. And uh, go ahead and introduce our guest and let's get his opinion about the 993. I would love to do that. And I am so happy to have our guest on here today. Love seeing his smiling face over there. But I, as an inter introduction, our guest today is a man who's won basically every endurance race there is, um, either as a team owner or a driver or both. He has wor worked with some of the most notable drivers in history, including Rick Mears, Rolf Stomlin, Johnny Rutherford, Brian Redman, uh, many more uh, well-known car guys like Paul Newman, Steve McQueen, and I'm sure there's going to be others that he'll mention here today. And somehow after he had all that success, he took about a 15-year gap and goes back into racing and wins the American Le Mans Racing Series GT Championship in 2000. He's been honored at tracks and Hall of Fame introductions at various tracks across the U.S. And he's got another one coming up later this year that I hope he'll tell us about. And clearly, I think one of his top honors, although we don't like to bring it this much attention to ourselves, one of his top honors is being a guest today on Cars on Call. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> and with that, I want to introduce my buddy, Dick Barber. Welcome to the call, Dick. Well, thanks, Adams and Steve. It's a pleasure being here. I can tell you guys are real car enthusiasts, and those are the type of people I love to be around. Well, and you are one as well, and I have to go back a little bit to when Dick and I met. I owned a, an, an Audi um, V8 station, the S4, the V8 six-speed station wagon. Uh, the Avant, as they're called, and um, that car had had a, a bit of a Paul Newman tie-in history. Uh, it was it was titled to Newman's own organics, and shortly after that, I bought a 914.6 that I was having restored, and in looking through the paperwork of that car, I noticed that the Audi wagon and that 914.6 had something in common. The 914.6 had come from Dick Barber Porsche Audi in California in 1970. And with the uh, Paul Newman uh, connection to the Audi, I thought, I, I have got to meet this man. So I called up Dick. He could not have been more gracious or welcoming. And that's when we first got together. I drove over there and we've met a, a couple, three, four, five times in person. I'm not even sure how many, but just couldn't have been more friendly and welcoming with his time. So, and you did, you signed that poster of the Hawaiian Tropic Girls. Okay. Well, the feeling's mutual. Adam's uh, been a great relationship and um, we wanted to continue. You're a real Porsche-file and it's great to be around somebody with so much knowledge. Well, it's it's, it's fun to be around you. I'll, I'm going to tell our listeners one thing that I got Dick to do that I, I just... I, I still am astounded and I still have the video. I put him in that Audi wagon and, and Dick said, I want to drive this car. And I said, well, you, you can have at it. Put him in the driver's seat. And it, it was such a thrill riding with you in that car. I mean, you shifted that car like you'd been born in it. I mean, no clunkiness, totally smooth every bit of the way. And we, we talked a little bit at that time about your grand history with, with Porsche and with racing. And 
Dick, go through a little bit before we get all into the heavy end of the race and go through a little bit about your uh, your your dealership days and kind of how you got started just in automobiles. Well, <laughs> it's a long story, Adams, but I'll just go back to the fact that when my father took me to my first sports car race, circa 1953, when I was 13, at Torrey Pines, California, our hometown, which is now a famous golf course, of course. That was a, a, a retired Navy base in San Diego. And they made a race course through the uh, canyons. It was fantastic. And, and we were inside of turn one. I was hooked. And um, from that day on, I just dreamed of being a, a sports car racer. And that was my goal. So uh, my dad was a test pilot in World War II for the for Consolidated Volte. First one to fly the B-24. I first wanted to land it on purpose, wheels up to see how fast it would catch on fire, uh, which it did. Wow. Got out safely, but uh, he was pretty active as far as doing the things I love. He was a boat racer. He never raced cars, but he boat raced boats, which I did also. And um, he was an aviator, which I was also. I think I still am, just not active. And so... My whole growing up was based around saving enough money to get my first Porsche, which I did when I was 16. I bought a 55 Speedster, just a year old. I don't know how I was able to do that. I don't remember. <laughs> and um, so being in San Diego, we have backcountry roads. So I was out there all the time, uh, slipping and sliding and learning how to coordinate my downshifts and just basically teaching myself how to drive fast. Fortunately, I never really had any offs to hurt myself, but probably looking back, I was pretty lucky. So that went on to get myself educated at San Diego State University. And then I became a store manager for the Broadway Hills uh, company, always gearing towards raising enough money to go racing. Then in about circa 19... 66, I formed a company called Automotion in San Diego, which was a Porsche repair facility and sports and high performance car accessories. Again, everything geared to make enough money so that I could go racing. As soon as I got that business going, I was able to build a 61 Porsche Roadster into an SECA car. And kind of the rest is history. I went out in that first race. I won my first race. Obviously, I was on cloud nine. And so I continued to race in the SECA pretty successfully. Then I went into the uh, next race car was a 904. And that was a beautiful car. And I had many great successes with that. And probably my biggest one was winning a national at Riverside, which is my favorite course, but also setting their, their track record in a production, which still stood to 1988. Wow, that, that, that's yeah. quite a long time for any track record. That was great. From then on, I went to a 908 Spider for the Can-Am in 1771, opened a Porsche Audi store in San Diego called Dick Barber Porsche Audi. And um, that was a great experience. 
Now, Dick, Dick, let me let me um, mention something. Here. <laughs> You've said so many things that just I know Steve and I's eyes just lit up. Your very first car being an, uh, a Porsche Speedster is miraculous in and of itself. But you were probably at least at that time. I mean, I think it proves how disciplined you were to be saving the money as as a very young man. I mean, I'm an, almost a child to, to then put down the money on a, on a Porsche. And and you said you were lucky. I think Steve and I both know that it means you were also you were skilled. Uh, that that's how that was interpreted. But I wanted to to just touch briefly on the nine hundred four, which I think may be the prettiest body Porsche has ever made on a street or racing car. It's just remarkable how that good looking that car is. Uh, were you driving that for a team, or was that? How was how was that put together? Because that was then a very expensive car, wasn't it? And that was that was my car, my own team, Dick Barber Racing. And uh, yes, it was an expensive car. And I do agree with you, Adams. It is by far the prettiest Porsche, in my opinion, also ever built. Uh, and it was mid-engined. It was light. It was lead. It was really, really to really go one hundred ten tenths. Uh, you really had to push it because it stuck so well, it handled so well. If you weren't careful, you could be in big trouble fast, which a lot of guys did experience back at that time, which I'm well aware of. Not me, but friends that raced those things. So, yeah, they were a fabulous car. And uh, that was really the start of my own team, Dick Barber Racing. I got you. Well, um, some of that. Some of that money that bought that uh, bought that car and bought that team was mine because I was a very good customer of automotion during those years. <laughs> Glad to hear it. Yes, that was that's cool. That, that was a very good little company, and that's what got me my Porsche Audi store. I was wondering. So those were not concurrent, Dick. You sold the automotion and then bought the dealership, or what? Did they overlap? Yeah, they they overlapped. Uh, I was doing all the high-performance Porsche uh, builds in California at that time. Porsche kind of, they knew that. So I was given the Porsche Audi store. I kept Automotion, and then I sold it and um, continued on with Porsche Audi. So when you talk about my first Porsche, just to go back for a second, Adams, and and the discipline to have it, I was disciplined. I I was holding down three jobs and still going to high school. I was a pep boys. I was a waiter in a restaurant and I was um, at a gas station, running a gas station. So I was jockeying and saving every penny I could because I wanted that Porsche. Wow. Wow. And then, and then the banker in our little hometown in the old days, you know, my dad took me in and introduced me to him. And <laughs> at 16, it was a little bit difficult to explain how I was going to make payments, but I did. He gave me the loan to buy the car. I made all my payments and the rest of that's kind of history because that kind of helped me further my career as far as being able to finance my dealerships, et cetera. Wow. Well, that's an, that's an impressive start. And boys and girls in the listening world out there, this is this is what happens when you set and stick to goals and visions. So that that that's pretty cool there, Dick. Steve, you you want to get want to tee off on some of the, some of the racing questions for Dick because I mean that's really what he is known for 
just just throughout the world. I mean, just the name Dick Barber just means racing. Sure. Uh, before I even ask a single question about racing, uh, I agree with you, Adams. It's amazing that uh, his first car was a Speedster, and he bought it at the age of 16. You, you can't do that with just one part-time job. Uh, it reminds me that I think in life, if you're going to succeed, nothing's more important. No two things are more important than determination and perseverance. And I think everything else is a distant third. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So um, endurance is another word that goes along with the racing uh, that that he's done with the the 24 hour and the 12 hour races that we'll touch touch on. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask questions that maybe are a little different, Dick, because uh, looking at your resume, it's amazing. And I know you've probably talked about most of this, but uh, there's a couple of things that are kind of questions that I had that are, like I said, a little bit different that I'm really curious about. And the first one is you went... I think in 1978 to Le Mans for your first time as a competitor. Is that right? That's correct. Uh huh. So first time um, ever. Oh, unbelievable! So, to me, the question is: it's a big step to go from a United States-based race car team to going internationally. Just the logistics. How hard was that? Well, Steve, it was very difficult. Uh, it was very expensive, of course. What I did is I had a second car. And I think I even had a third car. And I rented rides in the second and third car, the two gentlemen drivers. And that gave me the cash I needed along with my sponsorship to be able to do it. I mean, uh, I shipped an 18-wheeler over there called Big Red. First time that had ever been done from America. Uh, with our cars inside, and it was really the attraction in Paris. I mean, going through the towns. I mean, uh, there's movies of the crowds watching this thing because they'd never seen anything that big over there before. So my team was just really good. We we hired a, a Frenchman from Le Mans that was given to me by Porsche that knew his way around, and he helped us with our chateau. And with our rental cars and where to work, and and then I flew the whole entire team over there. And it, w- it was a big undertaking, and and I'm, and I mean the place is awesome because it's just it, it's so fast. And in those days, there were no chicanes. You know, I mean, you knew that you couldn't make a mistake. And uh, well, actually, with my second car did make a mistake. It was rolled into a ball, and the chicane straight away car number 90 91 excuse me i was in 90 but you you know it was just a magical place for me and uh you know to win our class there that first year was unbelievable nobody expected that porsche was very happy that really kind of cemented my relationship with porsche at that time because i got i received factory help from that point on which really helped my racing team I remember uh, uh, hearing something during the first Gulf War. I read this in the newspaper, and it always stuck with me because I think it's really true. And they said about the Gulf War, and I think this is true for any war, when there's a war, the armchair generals talk strategy, the real generals talk logistics. Getting a team over there, getting them all together at the right time to the right place uh, without delays and in time for the race. 
uh, I can't imagine uh, what a challenge that was. I didn't realize that you had the first 18-wheeler in France. <laughs> yes, especially the roundabouts. That was really something to do. Actually, <laughs> uh, this is a little side that a lot of people don't know. Uh, the driver of my big red uh, Peterbilt 18-wheeler was a man by the name of Jack McAfee. Now, I don't know if you gentlemen ever heard his name before, but Jack Fat McAfee was probably one of the most famous racers in the 50s and 60s before Porsche. And he won many races with Porsche Spiders, 550s, etc. And um, as he retired, uh, he came to me looking for a job and wanted to drive my trucks and the rest is history. So he stayed with me for many years. That's so. remarkable. Yeah, I mean that. So he he went from a little little fifteen hundred pound race car to a fifty thousand pound truck. Eighty thousand. With... <laughs> What's that? Eighty thousand pounds. Oh, eighty thousand. Of course, yeah. you would remember. Your your mind is unbelievable. That's that's cool. Did you say that you had never even been to Le Mans as a spectator before? Oh, never. That is just even even more remarkable still. And in the in the 79 year, you had to travel with somebody uh famous for a couple of reasons. And explain a little bit about the, I don't know if it was expected or not, but the media circus that sort of I don't know, took some of the attention off of uh, off of the racing team and the driving. Like, like what did you have to do with with uh Paul Newman that year? Well. I met Paul when we drove in 77 on a Ferrari team at Daytona. Had a great relationship. Then he knew I was getting a, a Porsche factory 935. We stayed in touch during 78. And he asked me if he could drive on my team starting in 79. And of course, I said yes. Number one, I liked him. And I'd be less than stellar if I didn't admit that I knew it would help us financially because of his uh, reputation. Budweiser came on board, helped us starting at the 24 Hours of Daytona, and then went through to Lamar where Hawaiian Tropic came aboard. That helped us a lot, again, because of his notoriety. And he was just a great guy, just really loyal to Joanne. He took her with her, with us everywhere we went. A lot of stories, uh, women climbing up our chateau, trying to get to a hotel room in uh, Lamar. I mean, it's it, it just incredible, his attraction to the world. When you went down the freeway in, in Lamar or in Paris, there were giant billboards in French advertising Paul's movies. I mean, he was as famous over there as he was here. And, um, and, of course, trying to run a race with him was really, really difficult because the paparazzi in the crowds, it was that year, I understood, was one of the largest crowds that Lamont ever had because of Paul Newman. And, and he was a really uh, dedicated race driver. He was not necessarily a natural like Steve McQueen was, but he was very technical and he never, he always was right on. He went 10 tenths his limit. 
and he did a very good job. I mean, during the race, he did his eight hours, never dropped a wheel. And of course, we won our, our class again, ended up second overall. Actually, should have won the race, but that's another whole story. Um, we agree that you should have won it. We agree. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> so with Paul, I mean, for instance, uh, when Paul first got in the car, uh, see, I started the race, then Rolf was next, Rolf Stomlin. And then um, it came to Paul's turn, and Paul got in the car, and he couldn't leave the pits because the paparazzi were out standing in front of the car, you know, taking pictures with the windshield, and he's trying to leave the pits. And, and we're there to win. We're not there for all this publicity. Believe me, I mean, I was, we were all dedicated, including Paul. So uh, Rolf and I, we, tackled the paparazzi and got him out of the way <laughs> and the next time Rolf got in the car when Paul came back in the paparazzi went back out in front of the car and this is a true story Rolf just mowed down four of them and they got out of the way I mean he didn't do it real hard but it was fast enough that he hit them and wow. Well, that's I, I, in base in baseball. The the, the pitcher is is inclined to brush a batter back a little bit. R Rolf took that to a whole new limit, didn't he? He did, and he said, "Paul, oh, that's what you do." And from then on, the rest of the race, no paparazzi <laughs> ever stood in front of our car again. Uh, <laughs> Lesson learned. <laughs> uh, yeah, because that that cost us. I think at that time maybe fifteen seconds, something like that. That that's a lot. That's uh, an eternity. Yeah, that's, that's a good power change. Yeah, we're, we're coming in and taking top four tires, 32 gallons of fuel, and changing drivers in far less than a minute. So you can imagine how important seconds were to us. And, and you know, we're going to be traveling over 3,000 miles in a 24-hour period. And those seconds add up. So we were very concerned about that. Anyway, Paul did a great job. He loved it. He told me he was the proudest of his whole life racing was his job at Lamar. You know, it was just a, a great relationship that endured. He came back and raced with me again in 2000 in a third car at, at Road Atlanta in the American Lamar series. And so and we stayed friends all these years. I used to go to Burbank Studios and sit there, just the two of us in the theater, his head of a bag of popcorn and we twice I had to watch his favorite movie, which was Slap Shot, because he's he did his own skating in that. He was so proud of that. And then we go meet some fellow drivers in California and go karting together. So it was a great personal relationship. And uh, uh, to get off the subject again, he called me up from the Lowe's Hotel. This is the week before Lamar. We were there for the Monaco Formula One race. And he said, hey, Dick, do you have a, a sport coat? I said, yes. He said, do you have a tie? I said, yes. We'll put them on and meet me in the lobby at 7 o'clock. Okay. So I don't know what's up. So I go down to the lobby. I meet Paul. And pretty soon, a giant black grocer, Mercedes 600 limousine, pulls up in front of the hotel. So to get out, this driver in his uniform and Paul and I, we go, we get in, and we head up to the castle. And we end up having dinner with uh, Princess Grace and Prince Rainier and Stephanie and Caroline. And <laughs> wow. <laughs> it, was, 
It was an incredible happening. Something that little Dickie Barber from San Diego, California, <laughs> expected something like that to happen. And then one f- further uh, observation to not bore you guys, but not I, at all. I'm sitting next to Rainier, Prince Rainier. Paul's on the other side. Def- directly across from me is Princess Grace and Joanne's to the right, and Stephanie and Caroline are to the to her left. So all of a sudden, I see Prince Rainier. We're having dinner. Prince Rainier stands up, and Paul stands up, and they head down the hall. And uh, so everybody stands up, and they go down the hall. We all sit down again. So they come back. Everybody stands up. Prince Rainier sat down. And later on, Joanne says, told me, I said, what was that all about? And she said, well, Paul asked the prince where the boys' room was. And prince was so cool knowing that nobody is ever to stand up before him. So it was not to embarrass Paul. He stands up and takes Paul to the boys' room. <laughs> well, the, but, the ultimate in gentlemanly wow. manners. Yeah, this this one of the many, many stories that, I mean, they could keep rolling off, you know, I mean. Well, little Vicky Barber's done well enough to have a lot of those stories. And I remember you telling me one time because people could get an impression that, you know, somebody who's famous in Hollywood and then goes and straps themselves into a race car and thinks they're going to be equally as good. Sometimes it's just done for the bravado. But you told me, Paul, you've told me many times how good a driver Paul was. And you said that I think he said to you, and it, or maybe you coined the phrase, Dick, but you said that um, that he just acted, uh, he, he took the money from acting just to support uh, his ability to, to go drive, right? It's sort of like acting was his hobby. Yeah, he, he always said that he would have much preferred to be a racing driver than a movie actor, but the acting provided the tool for him to go motor racing. That's what he said. Yeah. yeah. And so he... You know, he actually got the bug making the movie winning, a little kind of an indie story, indie car story. Joanne was his co-star. Uh, Bob, uh, uh, Robert, uh, I forgot the other star, Natalie Wood's husband. Wagner. Yes. Yeah. Robert Wagner. Yeah, there you go. Wagner, that's correct. And, and Paul just became totally enamored with racing getting to drive all those different cars, both Indy cars and sports cars in that movie. And from then on, it was a goner. He loved it. Did you say that was his favorite movie? Is that the one that you mentioned that that was his favorite movie because he did his own stunts? It was no, Slapshot. It was Slapshot. Slapshot. Okay. Okay. Hockey movie. I, I'm going to watch that movie and I'll, I'll watch it because it was his favorite. And I, and by the way, I now know who I'm never playing movie trivia with, and that would be Steve. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a couple of guys in Slapshot called the Hanson Brothers. Oh, are they're like, great, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unforgettable. Oh, that's a yeah. You'll 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 love it, Adams. It's a great movie. <laughs> Look forward to it. I want to ask a question. This is a racing question, but I've always kind of found it intriguing. And again, this is not something that I've heard anybody talk about but i want to get your opinion dick porsche's first victory at le mans as you know is 1970 with the slower of their 917s 
And then, of course, the only victory at Le Mans by 935 was in the 1975 year where you came, or 1979 year where you came in second. Both of those races, Porsche's first victory in 1970 and the 1979 race that you just talked about, they were marked by torrential longstanding rain. And the, the rain affected the race in both cases. Talk about 1979 and the rain and how did, what was it like for you? Well, I mean, obviously, you know, going 225 and a 935 in the rain is very, uh, you're quite respectful. You have to just really be gentle on the steering wheel. You can't make any abrupt moves. Uh, you have to be very gentle on the throttle. And on the Molson straightaway, it was it was really scary, to be honest with you. Uh, that, during the rain, there were a lot of crashes, and some of them were serious. But for me, I mean, I was out flat on it. I know Paul was flat on it, and Rolf was. We didn't back down, but the rain, it took its toll. So where we is at the maximum speed, Steve, is dry, no, but we were darn close to it because the cars had a lot of aerodynamic downforce and, and they stuck really good, but they were a handful. There was no power steering, big wide tires, you know, no air conditioning, uh, no um, creature comforts like the guys have in this day and age. I mean, it's totally different now. Uh, I really think it took a lot to drive a 935 successfully. I do say so myself. Looking I would back. imagine, and I, I was at Le Mans only once, and that was 1983, but I made a point to walk the track, and I walked the length of the Mulsanne Strait, which is over three miles. I mean, it's one thing to, to go th three more than three miles at 225 miles an hour. It's another one, and there's rain, and you, you, can, you can hardly see because of the spray. Right. Lot, lots of spray. You really, you just... You, you have to know where the track goes, even though it was a straightaway. You really had to know the nuances of the little tiny bends because, I mean, if you got off just a few degrees at those kind of speeds, you're into the trees. And then those days, there were trees. It's not like now where it's pretty well guarded. And you certainly didn't have those chicanes to show you, slow you down. Yeah, it, it was something to do. It really was. And and our, our windshield wipers, you know, we had some tricks. We used Coca-Cola on the windshield. That kept them from, from fogging up inside and outside. And, uh, and we engineered back in California uh, our own windshield wiper motors. We had a model railroad guy who built little HO scale trains and built them, and did the wiring, did the motors. We had him take our windshield wiper motor and and triple the power somehow and the efficiency and probably we were the only team that ever really had windshield wipers that worked the whole time i mean they did they worked great and i was always trying to do things out of the ordinary to try to be ahead of the game of uh, you know because i didn't know know that we were going to have rain but i knew that if it was going to rain i want to make sure that the speeds we were going to go that it was going to be eventful. You know, it's just incredible to hear you highlight a few things. And, you know, people talk about, oh, you know, I'm going to be a, um, 
uh, uh, the best race car driver and they go to school and they learn all about uh, chassis dynamics and, and breaking points and hitting the apex just perfectly time after time. But you mentioned these other things back to almost like what Steve said on the perspective of a team owner where you're trying to strategize all these different functions. I have never in my life heard about Coca-Cola on the inside of a windshield to keep it from fogging. And that's just one thing. And then the creativity it took for you to think of, I'm going to send an 18-wheeler to France. That has nothing to do with driving a race car any faster, but it's all about handling it and managing it and timing it to where you do save a second or two. And uh, the windshield wiper motor, you had not planned on it raining, and yet you went prepared with the heavier-duty motor. And we don't know how many seconds that saved you or possibly saved lives or an accident. It's just unbelievable the level of creativity it takes that doesn't have anything to do with driving a car fast. Well, thank you, Adam. Yeah, it's uh, it was a lot of a lot of thought went into ways that we we're going to be able to make that car last. You know, we had special wheel bearing grease. It's another whole story. We had um, instead of the KKK turbochargers, we had air research. I went up. And visit the, and them at Gardner Research to ask them if they could improve on the KKKs. And they said, okay, we can go from needle bearings to plane bearings. Do you want to do that? And so for like back then, about, I don't know, $20,000, I remember, which to me it was like 200000 I did that. But also, we never had a turbo failure in all my years of racing the 935s, and other people did. So we, we always were trying to have what Mark Donahue called the unfair advantage, being, being thinking what could take us out. And not just in mechanical things, but even in, in driving nuances. At Le Mans, one of the things that um, Rolf taught me, and I always listened to Rolf, he said, Dick, and we didn't have chicanes then at the start finish line going up the hill to the Dunlop Bridge. You were just flat out going up the hill. And pretty soon you're starting to drift going up the hill. It's such long sweeping right hand. And it's a it's blind at the top of the hill. And Rolf said, Dick, when you start getting up to where the crowd is at the top of the hill, look to the right and see if the crowd is looking at you. If they're not looking at you, sh shut it down, stand on the brakes, because that means somebody's lost it at the top of the hill and you're in trouble if they're looking the other way. So, um, and, and that happened to a lot of guys. They'd wow, what a great little driver tip that was. Yeah. yeah that's then, one you learned the hard way. Yep. So th that was one thing. And the other thing to make our engine last for that period of time is we would one third and two thirds of the way down the uh, Molson, you're flat out and you just gently lift off the throttle all the way and then immediately get back on. Very just a continuous motion, not quick, but not long either. And what you're doing is drawing oil up into the valve train, keeping the, everything lubricated. If if you just keep it flat out for three and a half miles, you know, the chances of that engine lasting are not good. So we have a lot of things like that that we did. And then we pass that on to our co-drivers and also to our our gentleman drivers in the other cars, which is That's, why those cars finished also. Once again, because, you know, <laughs> you don't win if you don't finish. And you mentioned a couple of the uh, potential Achilles points about like the 
the hub bearing grease. I mean, th those if, if that burned up, that was a fairly lengthy pit stop uh, in, in in a Porsche, and even in the street cars, they didn't quite get that wheel bearing grease right. And and I think I remember you telling me, uh, do you mind telling the listeners your source of the wheel bearing grease, or is that a guarded trade secret? Adams, I don't want to be difficult. It is kind of a Guarded secret, but that ain't uh, knowing that's fine. That's fine. You learn <laughs> the you, you learn them and you keep them. And there was another thing you mentioned. Oh, the the, the bearings in, in the turbocharger. Uh-huh. How long did it take the rest of the world to figure out that your turbochargers were not breaking and theirs were? They never did figure it out. <laughs> not, not, while, not, not while I was racing 935s, uh, because uh, you know, fortunately, there was only Two, I think two or three of my crew that knew about that. And I trusted my entire crew, but I realized I didn't want to take any chance except for my direct guys under me. So we just didn't tell anybody uh, about it. And even when I retired in 1980, I'm not sure a lot of people even know that to this day, to be honest with you. I mean, they've certainly improved turbos since then, but back then mine were bulletproof. Hey, that and reminds me of, uh, you know, earlier I said there's nothing more than nothing more important for success and determination and perseverance, and I think that's true. But um, the third would be preparation, and obviously your preparation was stellar and unusual. Uh, you said you retired in 1990, but then you came back. Or 1980, sorry, and then you came back. Talk about your comeback. It was 2000. You won the nine. You won the uh, the 2000 American Le Mans Series GT Championship with a 911 GT3 R. Talk yeah. about that because you 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 went into the business side and then you came back to race. Well, you know, I, I was back in San Diego and I was getting up early in the morning watching Formula One races uh, from Europe. Three hour time difference compared to what it is now. And uh, California didn't have racing anymore. Riverside was gone. And I just, I was active in the classic car business. Was not as fulfilling as racing. My wife saw uh, that I needed the opportunity to go racing again. I still have my blood. She said, because I told her about this new series, the American Le Mans series that Don Panos had founded in Atlanta. I'd been reading about it. And so I went to Las Vegas to where IMSA uh, uh, was introducing the American Le Mans series. It was a big event. And I sat in the audience and just listened and heard the whole presentation about this whole new series. So then I uh, uh, went to a race at Laguna Seca and I ran into some friends from Porsche. And uh, Alvin Springer saw me there. Uh, he said, Dick, what are you doing? I said, well, I want to go back racing. He said, how would you like to be the Porsche Junior Factory team for Porsche? And, of course, I immediately said, yes, of course. That was a great honor. And so I moved to Atlanta in 1999, lock, stock, and barrel, sold everything in San Diego, bought a home here, went to Road Atlanta, built a race shop at Turn 1 at Road Atlanta, put together my team again and bought a brand new 18 wheeler. This time it was big blue, not big red. <laughs> uh, and the race shop was 
like a hospital and hired the very best people. And we went and won our first race at 12 hours of Sebring. And um, then the rest of history, we ended up winning 10 out of 12 races that season, including um, Petit Le Mans, Sebring and Nürburgring, Germany and Silverstone, Brands Hatch. We won, we won the European Le Mans series and the American Le Mans series. Wow. 10 uh, out of 12 races, Dick. And I forgot to put the European Le Mans series on my CV. Remember to do that. So it was a lot of logistics, same effort that we did before, uh, same results. Um, then in 2001, I went with Reynard and prototypes to again go for the overall win in the, in the 675 class. Well, we did win the, the American Masters Championship again, and we won races in Europe, but we did win overall. Still didn't quite have the beans of the bigger prototypes. And then we got the Lamborghini factory team in 2004. Then we got a, a Ford GT team in 06 until I retired in 2012. That's in, I tell you, you know, in all the times we've spoken, Dick, and we've not covered nearly this much depth on the racing, I have not heard you mention much about the Lamborghini team. Was that a, was that a radically different experience than dealing with the, with the German makes? Was there any cultural differences or influences that were more, more or less difficult? Well, yes, it was a factory team, factory effort. I had giant hopes for it. It had the potential, but it just didn't have the reliability of the Porsches. Uh, it was very disappointing. I mean, I had to withdraw at the Canadian Mossport race because just in practice, uh, the rear trailing arms bent just from the G-forces. Oh, cool. The car was unsafe. Yeah. Uh, and um, you know, you never see Lamborghini on those consumer reports reliability lists. <laughs> Just no, never no. see them. There. I think not. You no, know, now that Volkswagen owns them, I think they're totally different cars. They're very good race cars now. Mm -hmm. uh, but back then, it wasn't Volkswagen we were dealing with, so uh, it was not really a pleasurable experience. It, it, the cars were beautiful. I mean, they were as fast as any cars in our class, but they just didn't have the reliability. Gotcha. What, was it, were they Chrysler-owned at the time? No, uh, they weren't. They were privately owned by Lamborghini at the time. Okay, okay. Yep. It's maybe maybe part, part of the issue right there. They just didn't have a big racing presence, nor a, nor a long history such as the German makes. Of course. That's fascinating. Wow. Well, Dick, I find it fascinating that you took that time off and then came back and then you know, not surprisingly, you were successful immediately the second time back. When you came back, did it feel like uh, like riding a bike, as they say, or was it more difficult than that? Obviously, it's a, new, it's a whole new generation of racers and race cars. Well, yeah, Steve, it, it came back immediately. I mean, I was just, uh, I was back in my element. I was happy, loved to work, uh, loved to be creative and we did a lot of creative things to the cars that made them really zoomy for instance 
we would take the inside of the front fender well. We would come down and go at a 90-degree angle. We would fill the 90-degree angle inside and make that smooth so the air would roll off instead of get trapped like a wing inside there. Just to give a little one of many examples, but that's the kind of thing that gave us really good speed. So yes, we would immediately went back to doing whatever we could to make sure the cars were prepared like watches. Well, and, and apparently they did with the with the 10 out of 12 races. Talk about an unfair advantage. Goodness gracious, people probably hated to see you unloading the truck. And when you get down to the point of making the inside of your fender wells more aerodynamic, you've pretty well thought of everything else. Well, probably not everything, Adam. <laughs> uh, yes, those two races still keep you up at night, don't they? <laughs> well, they, but they, they those were tire problems. That wasn't reliability problems. So uh, I think one was a second place. The other was a DNF because we blew a tire on the course somewhere. But yeah, the cars were extremely reliable. Those are one those 996 GT3Rs are wonderful race cars. And you were yeah. still a big 996 fan to this day, uh, even, even amid when, when on the secondary market as used cars, people maybe didn't have the highest opinion, which has certainly changed. You were always a flag waver for the 996. Well, yes, it, it, it was uh, a Hans Metzger engine. You know, I mean, yeah. he was a better engine designer than my friend Hans. He was... It was fabulous, and uh, you know, you just have that reliability. And you, when you need to push the car harder, you need to over rev it. You know that there's something extra every time because his engines were so good. And the drivers I had: uh, Bob Wallach, um, uh, Dirk Muller, Lucas Luer. Uh, they were all factory Porsche drivers. Some of the best, really, the Porsches ever had. I mentioned my friend Bob Wallach. Unfortunately, he died in 2001 at Sebring riding his bicycle. An elderly man with his motorhome hit his mirror, hit Bob, and uh, he died, which was a big shock to all of us down there, to be honest with you. But he was a dear friend, and he won five of the races with Sasha Moss and, and the car 51. I had cars five and 51. And he won five of the races in car 51. Great man. Well, and, and, and a great um, team owner, too. I'm sure that he liked working with you. You were inducted into the Hall of Fame at Sebring, correct? Earlier this year. And you've got another one upcoming. You want to want to share a little bit of that? Well, I, I'm not. I certainly enjoyed the induction into the Hall of Fame at Sebring. That was, of course, my favorite track having won there four times, that was a very big part of my life. Um, that was happened in 2020, I think it was, and right during the COVID time, I was not able to attend, which broke my heart. And I'm kind of not supposed to talk about what I know about this next one, so. Okay, well, we, um, we will report on it as yes, it but, happens then. Yeah, fair yeah, enough. That'd great, that'd be great, thank you. Well, we've, um... We've really enjoyed this time, and Dick, this is such an honor. Before we let you go, I've got one question that I've really been I, – I was thinking this – as soon as Adam said that you had agreed to come on, I thought of this. 
And then when I was reviewing your bio, I thought of it more. And that is over decades, you've had incredible success as a driver and as a team owner and as a businessman. When you think back to all of those aspects of your life, what are you most proud of? Being a driver. Yeah, my, my driving. That was, it gave me the highest joy of anything, really. It's just, it's hard to describe when you're in that zone and, and you're doing good. It, it's what I dreamed about as a kid. What, I, what was my goal all my life was to be a, a good race driver. And, and accomplishing that was very rewarding for me. Very good question, Steve. Thank you. Okay. Well, I, I think we'll wrap it up there. I love that answer. That is a great answer. And I, I, I wanted to just make one final comment. Sometimes you hear the phrase or, or people will give you the sort of the, the warning. They say, don't meet your heroes, you know, because you'll be let down. Uh, those people have not yet met Dick Barber. Oh, you're embarrassing me, but thank you. Uh, well, well, see, it's that humility. I think that 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 makes your achievements even even shine brighter. So thank you very much for being on. Okay, I will play the role of Stefan Moran, and I will say thanks for listening and like, subscribe, and all that good stuff. And uh, we are looking forward to having Stefan back. When he comes back from his National Guard duty, he'll be back on the next show. Once more, to uh, our very special guest, Dick Barber, thank you so much. Thank you, Steve and Adams. It was a pleasure. <laughs>